This is the 212 podcast, where we bring a different guest to you each week to provide an insight into the minds of those creative minds in the arts, uh, events and entertainment industry. Um, our next guest on the podcast this week is a colossus in the biz. He is more than a triple threat, being a part of a hugely successful UMI with three number one peaking albums in Australia, has starred in many movies, including tracks with Adam Driver, has written uh, music for and starred in theatre productions, including one composed by Nick Cave. He also presents uh, Liquid Lunch on Double J, as well as being renowned for his impeccably sharp dress sense. On top of all this, as you will hear, he just so happens to have an incredible vocabulary. Uh, drum roll for uh, Mr. Tim Rogers. How are you and where are you today? Hey, Dan. I'm about six foot two and a half, uh, 79 kilos, and happy as two Larrys and a Martha. And I'm currently in my steaming hot little apartment in St Kilda, Victoria. Awesome. I was fully expecting that to be uh, the, the case as well. So, um I guess uh, one of the things that I uh, am noting, we know each other, but delving a little bit into your background from an earlier age. Now, given your successful career in music, film, theatre, it was funny to me to see that you started relatively early studying law at Canberra. Do you think if you weren't in the entertainment industry, you would be in law? Uh, I definitely wouldn't be in law. I chose law because... I got thrown out of school in year 11 uh, for public drunkenness and and fighting and realised I didn't have any skills. So I thought the least obvious thing to do would be to uh, become a bit of a SWAT. And also I fell in love with uh, a group of young women at school who were smart and verbose and and well-read and I made it, I got back into school through um, probably my father's charm uh, and did rather well at school, went to law school in Canberra because my mum had been on a, a bus journey, uh, which was possibly to get to sort herself out, but she came back and, and um, we had some drinks together uh, I think I was about 17 at the time, and she told me about a woman, a young woman that she met on the bus who was studying law in Canberra and said, oh, Tim, she just sounded um, like a perfect companion for you. You know, She was a very interesting one. And, and I just made the decision there on the spot that I was going to go and study law in Canberra and, and meet this, uh, this woman. So I applied, got in. Uh, I think I met uh, the woman, um, which was... Kind of wonderful, but at the time as well, I was uh, very anxious, um, possibly mentally unwell, uh, had a nervous breakdown about three years into the law degree, and so I moved back to Sydney with my tail between my legs and pretty heavily medicated, and the any musical career, um, I was also doing theatre in Canberra at the time as well as law school uh, and some musical stuff, but if I didn't have that breakdown uh i I wouldn't i'm not sure what i'd be doing because i I was unwell um thankfully my mum didn't decide i kind of had a room for me so i could move back to northwestern sydney and be medicated for a couple of years and then the band started so 
it, it wouldn't be law that I'd continue with. I just didn't have the the mental um, perspicacity or, or the the strength of um, not strength of character, but I, I didn't stand up well to investigation. So maybe actually I would have been a good lawyer. <laughs> um, do you think? I mean, you mentioned there with with law and uh, and and being a doctor, they all seem the the safe options that people do um, pursue. Do you think really there, there there should be more of an outlet for for teens or people uh, in in secondary school or high school that there should be more of a theatre and, and musical background so that um, people can use that as in their own creative outlets? Well, I don't think there's safe options, Dan. I, I kind of get what you mean, but um, particularly from someone like me who's not from a uh, family of professionals. My dad was in mining and engineering. Uh, mum uh, was an accountant, uh, which she got into uh, after being uh, at one of the first mods in Melbourne <laughs> and uh, and a housewife, really. And she got into accounting to get out of home. Um, so very much uh, um, self-educated people. Uh, there, there was no value in, in the arts in our house, apart from that we enjoyed seeing a good movie or or listening to a good record uh and going into law was it surprised my parents they were were splitting up at the time and so they didn't there was no push to for me to go in there i just thought it was the weirdest thing that i could do (laughs) because there was uh, i just wanted to be a cricketer and a football player and then i I discovered music wanted to do that wanted to be involved in that what i did have though to try and shoehorn myself into your question uh, the high school I finished up, I went to a lot of different schools and the last one I went to, my high school had an incredible theatre program and I did get involved in theatre there and it was invaluable. Um, had great theatre teachers uh, and musical theatres, a huge love of mine. What, what it did though was not only gave me the opportunity to pursue that at which where i figured out i didn't have a strong singing voice but i did have a love of being part of a team not only a sports team but also a team in in theater uh but also that emotionally it can really you've got to keep an eye on your uh, emotional health when being involved in anything because as much of an outlet as it is for theatrical kids for, for musical kids for artistic kids in the same way that other pursuits can it can inflame your heart but if you don't have someone to talk to about that and understand it you can get yourself into some pretty dangerous territory meaning that any passion you have to understand that that passion and its blowbacks and its come downs you did you um when you started out in the musical in your music career um you know i guess more specifically, um, UMI did. Yeah. Did you guys kind of rock it quite quickly and and have you know a good base of uh, people around you to kind of protect you against, I guess, fame? Really? No, no. When we started off, I think it was late 1989, and uh, I was still very heavily medicated. And it was I'd started the band with my brother and my best friend Nick, and Nick and Jamie were right in with the hardcore punk scene, the hard rock scene in, in Sydney at the time. And we just wanted to play, well, they wanted to play hardcore 
and I couldn't. I, I just wanted to play Aerosmith songs or um, uh, Stone songs or, you know, out of stretch replacement songs or maybe an REM song. Um, and so, no, we played probably over a number of years, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows awfully. And then in about 1991, we were edging towards some kind of sound together and uh, a woman, Kate Stewart, who was working with touring companies at the time and, and was very heavily involved in the Sydney pub scene, offered to manage us. And she had a, her ethical backbone was str- the strongest bone in her body and had a mental acumen that was far beyond ours. She was only four or five years older than us. but So there was never any... I mean, the, the band became popular in about 1994, I think. So at least there were five years of... Of, of shows and apart from that we had a manager who was her primary focus was that we don't bugger people around that we're good to crew and um you know that we drink and take drugs as much as possible but you just you're just not a prick and you know we, we were pricks at times absolutely but no we, we didn't need any guard against that because we we'd had by the time we played in front of more than 200 people that were there to see us we'd, we'd already done maybe 400 shows or something like that so i think it was a good education you've got all of these different um things that you've you've done with a the theater with the movies with with umr with the uh, i guess the radio station that you've got now the radio um, show that you've got now is there one i know you're not allowed to kind of pick your favorite but is there one that you're kind of most proud of it's a good question, Dan. I'd, oh, look, I'd honestly say I'm most proud of the relationship with my daughter, but, you know, I know we're talking professionally. I <laughs> think uh, that I'm very kind of voracious about trying to be a better songwriter. And uh, the songs that we're known for, um, we haven't had any hits, but there are songs that people know. There's this old song, Burning Chair, that people know, and this other ballad called Heavy Heart that people know. But I can see holes in them. Uh, people like them. I'm very grateful for that. But I think the fact that I still have a, a it's more than a hunger. It's a bit of a, a rabid obsession to be a, a better songwriter. I'm proud that I'm not um, lazy, that I, I hate the fact that I wake up at every hour of the night and think about songs or think about performances and and, and want to be better. But uh, in a way, I'm, I'm kind of proud about that. You uh, you mentioned your daughter there. Does does have, does your daughter have any aspirations to be a musician? Have you have you tried to talk her out of it? Like just stay away. Well, she's lived in New York for probably almost ten years now, and she's musically extraordinarily talented. Uh, she's a classical violinist, exceptional player, but doesn't have a great love for it. Uh, her mum has been involved in music all her life as well and, and runs a studio with her stepdad and they run a brilliant studio in New York. So Ruby's always been surrounded by music people. There was this lovely experience a couple of years ago. Um, Ruby was listening to some records by The Strokes in, in her room when the last time she was out here about two and a half years ago. And she asked me this question. She said, oh, Dad, you tour with him, didn't you? And I told her the story about how we got to tour a bunch of times together. And she said, Dad, did I ever meet them? And I said, darling, that was the first tour you ever went on. Uh, you were three months old, maybe five months old, um, a little bit old. You were still in the bassinet. 
And she said, oh, wow, did I ever meet Julian? I said, darling, he cradled you. Yeah. <laughs> but she's surrounded, been surrounded by music her whole life. And I think both her mum and her stepdad and I, we definitely haven't pushed her in that that regard uh because she's a violinist i've asked her to play on stage with myself and with the band and i said hey darling here's easy money for you and one night we had a couple of cups of tea a couple of fags and she said i I don't want to get on stage and people know that i'm tim rogers daughter and and have that expectation of me and and i was blown away by her that she said that because uh being Tim Rogers' daughter or being Rocio Garcia Rodriguez's daughter or Matt Verderay's stepdaughter, I didn't realise that that was a pressure on her. Um, but when she expressed it that way, I thought, okay, I'm, we're going to leave you alone. And then it was so in the meantime, she's been making demos in uh, Matt's studio, Matt and Rocio's studio in New York, and <laughs> they're amazing. <laughs> they're just oh my god they're they're, they're so um they're, they're nuts and so do you, do you think it was something that you could make like if she's if her thing is i don't want to be tim rogers but uh, do, uh, i don't want to kind of be uh, living off your shirt towels i guess or, or known that this is tim rogers daughter is it something that you could push her into a different sect of music i.e your music probably wouldn't be classed as classical. Maybe if she's a violinist, that it could be pushed down that avenue. Not even pushed, but um, you know, coerced. Maybe um, uh, is the right word. I think just leaving her to her own devices is the most important thing. Uh, we, her mum and I, loved that she was studying classical music and music theory and production, and. We dearly want her to have those skills, but yeah, you know we've we've all been kids. You don't you if your parent asks you to do something, you run the other way. So what she's done with her own music, uh, and I don't know where it's going to go because she's just bizarre, bizarrely talented human. Her tunes are nothing like I expected them to be. They're this swampy, moody, but have these melodies that come out of. Now, whether it's just a natural talent thing or her her musical education, I'm not sure. Maybe, hopefully, it's a it's a mixture of it all. Um, because if she's been reticent to follow classical music in the past, or or to to follow what her parents are listening to, and and her mum and her husband as well are very much into uh, rockabilly, rock and roll, uh, but we've never. You know that that's up for to Ruby to the side, but then the songs that she's sending through are this, as I said, swampy kind of guitar music with these melodies that are from outer space you know, and beautiful lyrics. We can't wait to hear that for sure. You another love in your heart, and um, you know, obviously Ruby is is one of the major one, but is I guess Australia, um, and uh, you mentioned New York there, New York uh, uh, amongst other places that you've been to you must have been to countless amounts of cities given you have traveled a lot if if you didn't live in australia where where do you think you would be living um texas well the, the only the, the big love i've had but it's it's sort of mixed with a bit of um heartache is is, is spain and madrid um ruby's mum is from madrid and her family are complete 
madrileños, the the Madrid people, and I love that town. And for decades, I've thought, and and myself and Ruby and, and her mum did live in Spain for on and off for a number of years. That's it. Seems to be that that's Ruby's life and and her mum's life and and Matt's life. And I, I did so sort of apart from that because I don't, it it almost you know. Uh, Parents can become obsessed with their kids, and and I don't, I don't want to be one of those people. You know, Ruby's got her own life now; she's about to turn twenty, and I just want to be there, but I don't want to be. Um, I'm not a golf caddy; I'm, I'm her father. You know, um, and there's just something about living in a caravan in um, in Texas that still that's where I go in daydreams. You know, it's pretty much uh, in an airstream. Uh, caravan and um, uh, go and uh, ride horses during the day, um, write songs in the afternoon and then drink beer and play cards and listen to records at night. Um, that's, But still, I mean, there, there are parts of rural Victoria that uh, can fulfil that for me. Uh, I guess just uh, for me, Texas, it's it's the music, the, the country music comes from there. That um, You know, Guy Clark and, um, you know, Townsend Zand, it's all that kind of um, sad old drunk macho male bullshit that... Um, well, there just seems to be something special there as well because, you know, I've got um, a lot of friends that that uh, live there as well. They, they work at South by Southwest, naturally, as you do in Texas if you're in the events industry. Well, but it's... Um, that's, a, that's a good point because um, I wouldn't go near that event. <laughs> the, the couple of times I've been there to South by Southwest, it was amazing, but... Um, you know, anywhere where I can um, be alone, <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yeah. So it's the opposite of being alone, South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, Dan, the, the the few times I've been there, uh, Davey from you and I, you and I were talking about this the other day. You'd you'd turn a corner and you'd see a a rock band that looked exactly like you, and you'd want to go and kick yourself in the head. You know, just um, so so I, I didn't. There's so many of us, and <laughs> they yeah. they all look uh, they all look too um, hungry for um, acclaim or or to be to be noticed. So, mm. but they still seem to be producing such amazing artists. I mean, you say like I mean Gary Clark Jr., Black Pumas just coming out of uh, Texas as well now as well. It's Black uh, Pumas, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, right. I haven't heard them. No, you no, I mean you need to give them a listen. They're really really great. Um, Thank so, you. Black Pumas Colours, yeah, yeah, really amazing song, um, uh, and and their album's just amazing as well. So this is where you you're travelling as well. The people that you know in different countries, you get to hear, I guess, different people talking about different bands and saying they're the next best thing. But uh, this one seems to have, have blown up quite a, quite a bit. So it's um, yeah, definitely give them a listen. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you must have been asked every question under the sun, rather than what you usually get asked. Is there something that you always hope that someone asks that they don't ask you? Like, is there something that you have in your life that you've done that you'd be wanting to shout from the rooftops that you're really, I guess, immensely proud of? Um, Jeez, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I Maybe it's been from gay parentage or something I, I i found it a little dismaying that i haven't been uh, not uh, i've been asked very few times 
if I'm homosexual, uh, which I've found disappointing um, because I've always uh, equated homosexuality with a with a sensibility that is attuned to uh, to beauty and to pain uh, to um, some kind of awareness and because I still played team sports and and I'm around a lot of kind of masculinity and rugged masculinity in my age I guess being 51 uh, now is about the time that I guess my opinion should be hardened and being hardwired and getting a little bit bitter and I'm, I'm noticing that amongst um, gentlemen of, of my age and and my uh, it, it's not it's not femininity but um, my, uh, I've always called it ponciness <laughs> but I think uh, I'm not sure where to put it because I think that any way I declare it would be insulting uh, to, to, to others um, I'd just like to think that straddling worlds with team sports and and then the arts um between grift work and 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 the kind of uh uh hoo-ha that goes with that yeah being asked about my sexuality has has been a disappointment i I obviously think well i i do now think that i'm not doing my job properly uh because that's (laughs) is there if you know if if you're a lead singer of a rock band you should there should be a a question mark hanging over your head. You know, I wonder what that person eats for breakfast. And I think I've just been a little too obvious that, you know, it's pretty obvious in the morning. I um, uh, have a coffee and a cigarette and just wait to whatever hour of the day I can, you know, crack a beer. It's just, it's far too obvious. How do you manage to, uh, I mean, during lockdown, have you managed to find like a creative outlet um and and how does that creative outlet look for you i mean it's been a it's been a an extended time in in victoria um and and creativity is in is in your blood um with everything you're doing um have you managed to find a bit of a creative outlet for yourself just back to songwriting i think um i wrote 20 30 kind of folk songs um that i wanted to do and get orchestrated uh, but worked on the the lyrics and edited the, the lyrics, the, the lyrics, uh, and then at a point maybe about halfway during last year, I got sentimental about uh, the rock band I've been in for thirty years, and so I rewrote all the music, none of the lyrics. Worked on the lyrics for a while, but then rewrote all the music and sent it round to the rock band I've been in for thirty years, and they. Not not um, immediately, but uh, individually they jumped on it, and so we, uh, you and I made a record, and it's coming out soon, and it's amazing. And so, what I hoped to do was to get to work on a compilation of short stories and fictions, um, work on my chess game. Um, try to stop drinking, um, you know, get my skills set up. What I actually did was return to my first love, which is, is songwriting, and wrote this my record, and we managed to record it. And lo and behold, it's coming out, and it's ecstatic. Um, 
for <laughs> a multitude of reasons. It's, it's amazing. Like it's, uh, and I think that's where a lot of people are trying to find those things. Maybe a project that they've had on the back burner, or things that they've been thinking about that that they're able to, to to kind of get out during this time. I mean, you're you're renowned for for having, a, I guess, an incredible vocabulary and a way with words. Um, where do you think where do you think that came from? Do you, do you, you I mean you love to read, you obviously love to write given you're a successful writer, but where do you think that 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 comes to? Or do you think it's a natural gift or do you think you really have to work hard at it? Uh, I think as far as writing goes, I have to work very hard at it. Uh, writing fiction is something um, that will probably take another 20 years to, to write something of any uh, any fictional value. Um, the love for it, my parents weren't big readers, but they liked talking about writers <laughs> and <laughs> there was a pursuit of everything as kids. We, we wouldn't sit around and, and, uh, talk poetry together. The, um, my parents were very basically educated uh, Victorian kids. Uh, then when they, um, split and the family splintered. Uh, we were kind of left to the four winds. But my younger sister, uh, who's an actor and uh, a voice coach um, for very big movie stars and whose husband actually died of the plague last year, Andrew Jack, in in England while he was working on the Batman, uh, Batman um, film. Uh, and my brother, my older brother, who's uh, an absolute rat bag, but gorgeous uh, and also a, a lover of um, poetry and of literature and we're kind of autodidacts the kids um, with no disparagement to our parents but we found literature and uh, poetry and music of our own accord and so we share that together as kids uh, my brother's only a year and a half older than me my sister's a uh, year and a half younger and when we talk as siblings uh, we'll be throwing in uh, quotes or what we're reading and what we're writing and um, what we're stealing uh, quite a bit. So I think, but but for each of us, I think it was in the pursuit of of either romance or friendship. Uh, we learned that at school, and so re- recognizing with uh, Ruben, my daughter, that that her big influences in her life for the past ten years and possibly for the next aren't necessarily going to come from her parents they're going to come from her experiences of of, of romance of love of, of spite of friendship and uh, I, I look forward to what comes from that because it's definitely the case with us rogers kids it's it's funny you say that i saw something uh, this week and it was it was hilarious to me is that and i think this is just across the board but it was sergio aguero an Argentinian footballer who plays for Man City yeah. who got Jamie Vardy's jersey because his son wanted it and his dad is Sergio Aguero. His, uh, his other relative is Leo Leonardo Messi and uh, or his godfather is Lionel Messi and his uh, other relative or, or association is Diego Maradona. You've got three <laughs> incredible footballers and he wanted Jamie Vardy's um, uh, um, jersey. It just sums it up. <laughs> Really? Well, until he comes and 
plays for the Seagulls is, is nothing. So <laughs> That's it, Tim. That's what we want to hear. Come on, up the, up the Seagulls. Um, you, uh, you obviously, and we mentioned, we touched upon this earlier, but you're, you're obviously well known, very no, well known for incredible stage presence, um, helped along with your, as I mentioned, impeccable taste in fashion and your wardrobe. Do you shop when you're on tour and how do you find your, 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 your pieces? I definitely shop while on tour. Um, it because if the boutiques that I like to frequent are <clears throat> not on the high street, and if <laughs> you go to um, whether it's vintage or um, secondhand stuff, uh, previously lived in apparel, you'll always get a story with it, and so to keep me out of the pub uh when on tour yeah absolutely go looking for clothes because uh, and i noticed that i did a bit with ruby when we toured together a couple of years ago as well because you always get a story out of someone um whether it's the boutique they uh are working in or, or another customer and 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 you get to share stories and also if you new stuff or um bespoke outfits um got a couple of designers um Alice Hedgley in particular, and a Cordell down here in Melbourne who are creating gorgeous work and that are shouldn't be affordable to me, but they're these um, uh, tailors, um, designers, and you get a story out of it. Where where did you get your love for design for? Where, where did you get your love for, for couture from? Uh, I definitely don't... Um, because most of the people I spend time with, we we wear stubbies and go to work. But my God, I love dressing up because it one because I wasn't blessed with a good-looking face, and I'd rather people spend time on my body and what I'm wearing. How dare and, you say that about yourself, Tim? No, nah, it's, nah, it's just the truth. But the um, it's all an acne thing. Uh, as a kid and also I, I had this uh, skin affliction as a kid where I had warts all over my um, face and body for for a couple of years and yeah you know when you kind of get teased about that for a while you you develop a bit of a complex about it but and it's also it's fun and I think uh, if here in Melbourne today it's 34 degrees and while I was walking up to the bottle shop before I was in a pair of um, flared slacks and and a long sleeve shirt, and you get a second look, and but maybe that gives the opportunity for people to go, what what's he doing? What's he doing? You know, it's just there's a story there. If I saw someone walking down the street, overdressed in very humid conditions, Dan, I'd think, what's going on there? <laughs> do you think? Do you not? But do you not understand? Even if they obviously didn't know who you were but they looked at you from a dress point of view do you not do you realize how much of uh an impact that has on their day and if it means that they get to speak to someone else or that they uh or it's brightened up their day um, that's, i mean that's that that's the wish yeah that it, that it impacts and and i hope that yourself and your wife and and other people that we know and love that it's not a vanity is a it's almost like a mm, thing that there's there's the vanity part of it which absolutely exists but 
also wanting to feel good. And if you feel good um, because you're dressed not particularly well and not expensively, whatever, if you if you exude happiness, not everyone, but 5% of people will pick up on that. And if that gives them a little spring in their step, then that's wonderful. Whether they're a, um, a six-year-old uh, who um, I was wearing a Stetson cowboy hat today and are you a cowboy? And I went, yes, I am. He said, where's your horse? I said, he's parked up the street. Why don't you go look for him? Um, there's a little story there, you know, just uh, that that old adage or that um, of smile that makes people wonder what you're up to. I, I, I love that. that. Mm. Yeah, I, I like it, it because it, it, it. Um, people wonder, oh, I wonder where they're off to. You know, you guys walking down the street, people go, ooh. Look! Ooh, look at them fancy pants. Where, where are they off to? And I'd just like to just add on that as well. There's far too many people in gym outfits uh, and not enough people dressed up. Yeah, look, yeah. Look, I, I, I agree. I when I go and um, run around or kick a footy, I like to wear something stupid. But actually, Dan, here's a story. When I was at my local bakery, it was in um, Elwood. Uh, Baker up the road, outdoor, selling everyone in their masks and the like. And I was up um, buying bread and maybe it was July, three-piece suit, just because I, I needed to brighten myself up, you know, being a mild depressive. And so three-piece suit, waiting in line, and, and a lady behind me tapped me on the shoulder and she was in active wear. Good on her. She was being active. But she said, I see you around. Why are you so dressed up? And just quick as a wink, I was in particularly good form that day. I turned to her and said, Madam. You never know when you're going to be assaulted, thrown into the back of a limousine and taken to the most marvellous party. And if I'm taken to that party, I do not want to be underdressed. That's brilliant. We that's bought brilliant. our bread and walked on. Love it. And that's, that's, a, good, uh, that's a good mic drop there. Um, what, <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think your most extravagant purchase was or is? Ooh, it's truth. Uh, my wedding suit, uh, which I bought in uh, the year 2000, uh, only got one wearing, um, but it was bespoke and I chose quite conservatively because it was for uh, my wedding in Madrid and I knew that my um, then wife's parents were going to be there. And so I chose rather conservatively when... I really shouldn't have because they're gorgeous people who would have completely understood if I'd come in a, in anything. Um, but that was the most expensive thing I've ever bought and um, was a little misguided. Um, my ex-wife at the wore the most insanely beautiful uh, dress that was so revealing. Um, you know, she's a good-looking woman. Why shouldn't she? She's a good-looking human. Uh, but it was in uh, in a church, and our Spanish family who were there said they saw the priest's jaw drop when she, she walked into the building. And I was dressed in this uh, very expensive suit, but it was it was quite conservative, really. Going back to the musical career, I mean, talking about the the emotions of certain uh, situations. Is there um, is there a gig that you've done or attended even that um, still gives you goosebumps when you think about it? When when I've asked that question to people before, it's normally 
not been uh, the big acts that have that they've uh, seen. It's normally been a point in time in their life, or or usually with friends that they haven't seen for a while that they that they still kind of get that that goosebump feeling. Um, do you have a gig uh, that you've played at or attended that you that, that that brings that goosebumps to you still when you think about it? There were two, and there there, there were quite a few early on, but just in more recent history, uh, I saw Patti Smith with uh, my partner Rosemary in Paris uh, 2015. She was playing L'Olympia um, and we got gypped for tickets but then re-bought them. Um, I've got a bit of it odd history with Patti Smith but when uh, she came on and looking at uh, how doesn't matter how old she was now, I guess in the mid-60s, but she walked on and from a distance and being in Paris and all of that entailed and her history with that town, I just collapsed in tears. And then uh, as an encore, she did People Have the Power, which is, uh, it's probably not the best Patti Smith song, but it's the one that um, rattles my vertebrae and, and uh, when she broke into that, I just started crying again and dancing. And there were these three young ladies. I'd, I'd lost Rosemary by that point. She was she was further up in the crowd. But these um, three young girls came out and said, uh, excuse me, monsieur, um, we just want to say you are perfect. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And, and what I think they meant was that my reaction was perfect, uh, that for Patty to come on, sing People Have the Power, Paris, uh, through this... Um, arduous travel day and this great release and seeing this she's a the most humane magician i've ever been in the presence of uh patty uh, the other one would be uh the band played with a band called the replacements in london uh maybe four years ago and the replacements are my favorite band of all time and they asked us to support them in london we flew over lost tens of thousands of dollars that we didn't have but we've got a loan going over there and they've been so important to me since i was a very young kid and um meeting them and all that was hanging out was the best but when they came on stage and they started with a song from their very first ep taking a ride and it just goes and I had six beers in my hand and I was with the guitarist from you and my Davey and we were we were shaking with excitement that we're finally going to see the replacements. Those six beers got hurled into the air as we ran to the front of the stage just to dance. You know, so and I can't wait for the next experience like that. And if I spill beer on anyone, I apologize. Yeah, and I'd just um, like to say that that is an incredible waste of, of beer as well, um, Tim. So just make sure that you have something with you. It was it was worth it. It was worth it to dance to take the ride <laughs> by the replacements. What uh, you're obviously south side of Melbourne, so uh, I mean, what venue uh, have you played the most? Is it is it something within South Side, or is it is it is there a different one that you've played kind of the most times? Well, uh, I mostly work in venues Southside now as a bartender um, for the past couple of years. No, the, as far as playing them, uh, the Metro in Sydney has always been a big one because we played a lot of shows there when we were uh, quite popular. Um, as far as, as playing, no, there's a smattering. Um, uh, but uh, the ones I go to, to drink at are the ones I 
value more heavily. You know, a venue's only as good as its staff and noticing that as a moving more into hospitality and um, venue maintenance as I get older, um, really notice staff in in pubs and in, in restaurants and the like. But which ones you, do you think of it? Which ones do, you, do which ones come to mind when you think about that? Well, I think Misery Guts in St Kilda is the the best pub in Melbourne. Um, the staff at the SP, I was working at the SP for a while uh, before you know with the plague and everything, most of us lost our jobs. I think the staff there were insanely good. I was the oldest one there by about four hundred years, and um, those uh, young men and women um, were. Uh, so so good so attentive professional and yet knew how to deal emotionally with people because a lot of hospitality is dealing emotionally with people people are charged up there you know sure there's the drunks and there's a way of dealing with them but then people are just charged to be together and it's a lot like being a performer because being a porn if you're playing folk music like i do when i go out and play by myself um and people aren't listening what are you going to do about it? You know, people are there to socialise and some people are there to listen and some aren't. And noticing that with hospitality workers is quite something. You know, um, young men and women at the bar and they're just being, or waiters, waitresses, uh, they're being often treated horribly and, and you've got to, you're kind of forced to suck that up. And it's quite something to, to be on the other side and, and experience that and realise, well, you're, you're an employee, but geez, at the point you just want to say, as humans, are you fucking serious? Are you talking to me like this? Uh, I heard the most ridiculous shit. I mean, particularly sexist shit uh, that, yeah, everyone here. But anyway, what's uh, I guess what's the we, we found something the other day actually about just unusual gigs. Um, not that it was a particularly unusual one, but I mean, Tech Perkins at the jail playing Johnny Cash. I love Johnny Cash. So I mean I'm I'm sad that I missed that gig, but but Tex Perkins playing at the the Melbourne Jail uh, seemed like a really unusual fitting and probably just a really cool uh, environment. Can you think of the most unusual venue that you played at and and why why it's unusual? Maybe maybe it was a little bit daunting at first, but then you actually got into it and it was actually it was actually quite cool. It worked out. Well, it was a refugee centre up um, now. My terminology here may be a bit off, but it was a holding centre, whatever. I mean, that's the, I'm sure that's the governmental uh, word for it, but in northwestern Australia. And we got approached by uh, someone working there. We were playing in Broome, and they said, would you mind coming and um, spending an afternoon uh, with some people who are incarcerated? Uh, and in, do they call it processing? Um, uh, so it was intimidating, but our manager and bass player, Andy Kent, said, come on, this is a worthwhile thing to do. And went, well, Flip Wilson, yeah, hell. And on the way, Andy said, maybe we should bring some foods in. I mean, the, the people who were there incarcerated were mostly from the Middle East, um, Tamal, uh, Sri Lankan people, um, Afghanistani, uh, Iranian, Iraqi. And so he said, 
gee, this is a, a stab in the dark, but let's take some foods that maybe they wouldn't be able to get in the the the, um, the centres. And so, you know, some um, dates and fruits and, and nuts and, and um, just whatever we could get in, in Broome. And, and we went to the centre and, and spent an afternoon with those folks there. And, and we played some songs and then listened to people's stories. I've got to admit the ones from uh, the uh, Tamil uh, folks were particularly uh, jaw-dropping because it's just a, a story I didn't uh, have not heard much about. Anyway, we just, for about four hours, listened to people's stories, some of which the folks had been there for years. Uh, and then we played Beatles songs and sung together and there were some performers um, who were incarcerated there and they sang us their songs. On leaving a uh, young a uh, girl, Iraqi girl, came and, and grabbed uh, me on the arm and said, <laughs> in English, said, Mama, I'm going with them as we were going out through security. And, well, that just kind of broke us. And we went and played a show in Broome that night to um, a good crowd, but that was um, kind of shattering. And also uh, we felt rebuilt as as humans. Apart from anything, everyone, we went there, you know, we were probably hungover, a bit drug-fucked and all, and we just heard the most amazing stories and from all around the world and people who were incarcerated and they were um, fleeing situations that are uh, unimaginable to, to, to me. Um, it was humbling to say the least. That's an incredible story, Tim. I really, that's... Yeah, it's quite powerful, really, because it's just not everyone gets the opportunity to see that uh, in their face, in in their face, but also just having a chance to to almost build spirits in a in 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 a in a, a real marginal um, uh, uh, way, um, and obviously you getting to see that other side as well culturally, that, that, that would have been an amazing experience. Well, I'd never felt it that elementally before um, because that was sharing something through music and it, it felt elemental. And the show that night, although it was good, it was booze and, yeah, fucking, yeah, rock and roll, and it, it, it felt a little cheaper sure and uh, however I was grateful for both but I know where I got my uh, my life education from that day it was like playing with Dave and I played in Devonport the other day and we did a, a school visit and played for these beautiful 15 16 year old kids poor shy you know some were Skype some were um, show-offs and these others were just excruciatingly shy kids and they're gorgeous and we played songs together and and afterwards and um talked and did photos and the whole bit and then uh, the crowd that night with the parents show was you know no one listening and uh everyone drunk and, and dave and i sort of scurried back to our hotel and said wasn't that school visit just the best <laughs> You and Dave, obviously, you mentioned there, like, you've been through uh, a lot with the albums that you've created. There's There's been so many now as well. But is there an album that you would keep uh, if you had to chuck uh, the rest away? Well, I'd, I'd say the new one, of course, but uh, rather than be churlish. Um, well, we made this record called Convicts, and it wasn't very popular, but it was at 
we made it, you know, I was divorce, medication, drug, and we made this record that had a lot of spirit to it. And I was proud that it was the first time I thought that our friendship's actually going to be a lifetime thing. The band were at a low ebb. I was in a terrible low ebb. And, but we made this very spirited record. And then I thought, you know, as much as we want to kill each other, sometimes we're, we're actually lifelong friends. So yeah, Convicts, I think. It came out maybe early 2000s sometime. We're coming to the uh, the end of the podcast now, but uh, at the episode now, but um, one of the things that I, I, I really wanted to just kind of pick your brains, given the amount of different kind of situations you've been in and the, and the different environments you've been in within the, the arts, events and entertainment industry is... Um, if someone asked you about the industry, about wanting to get into that, what, what would you say and, and would you recommend it? Well, I'd recommend not trying to get into the industry. Uh, if, if in a professional capacity and if you're not a performer or a writer, I can understand that and getting into it from, from a non-performative or writing uh, way, uh, I always think that I've always thought. It made a big impression upon me early on that it's all about personality and the brashness and the competitive, you know, those that are very competitive uh, will always come back on you in a bad way. Uh, if you're a performer or a writer or uh, want to get involved in that way, I uh, just don't think, don't try and get into an industry, um, cultivate your art and value it and, and try and get better at it and when you feel that competitive bug um, really think about what that's doing to you and also why that's there um, no amount of success is ever going to make you happy happier uh, it, it might get you a caravan but it's never going to make you happier so I think you know, on different sides of it to treat this art that we're making as a profession I think is a mistake um, there are people who will tell you differently and they're well within their rights. Um, I've made huge mistakes uh, financially and the like, but yet still existing and still a reasonably happy human being. But if you want to get involved in the industry as a professional in in a way that you want to be involved in events or shows, um, uh, listen and learn, take on jobs for nothing, uh, and at a certain point say, I am not working for you for nothing. I am doing work here and I demand to be paid for what I'm doing. Um, if you're a musician, look around, realise that you are the person that is working least in the room. Always respect the people who are working in the venue and the people who are working to make the sound good. Um, but just competitiveness, I think, is um, a, a bit of a, a scourge, particularly with the, the impetus now on social media and, and your profile and the like. Take time out from that and, and work on what you're good at whether it's uh, working, writing, performing, or otherwise. Uh, I think that's a really great place to leave it, Tim. Um, uh, Tim Rogers, thanks very much for, uh, for joining us today and um, really appreciate the, the insight that you've given us. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Handsome Dan.